welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Nice to see you all. My name's Micah. If we have not met, I am the lead pastor here at Awaken. Glad that you're here. Um, did anyone see the dance, the little dancer we had down here? Oh, man, that was great. We should add that every week. That's fantastic. Mom, it's cool. Love it. <laughs> I, I, I almost joined her, but I thought that would, that would, that would add a little more tension to the room. <laughs> and I'm not sure we wanted that, so... Um, hey, if you didn't know, we have uh, artists in residence that we do uh, every, uh, every, every other month or so. And the Kepharts, Tim and Susan, are um, uh, offering beautiful little preludes and postludes for uh, piano for us this month. Uh, we're going to chat with them a little bit next week to hear more about those guys. So wanted to make mention of that. Um, two things before, uh, actually two announcements, or, uh, two announcements and two dates, and then we'll jump in here uh, briefly. Uh, many of you know John Mark Nelson, our, our worship leader, uh, and some of you who follow his music may know he is uh, rec- or recently announced uh, tour dates, and so he'll be out on tour uh, this spring, which we're very, very excited about. Uh, he's been working very hard for opportunities such as this, and so when it came around, it was like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and some of you may have wondered, like, what does that really mean at Awaken, and uh, will he come back? Um, so I wanted to just stop for a moment and say we're really excited about that for John Mark. And also, um, yes, uh, his plan is to come back. Um, over the next couple of weeks and months, uh, we're working with Josh and Kate Peterson, who are standing in the gap as, as sort of the go-to uh, worship leaders. And so we're so thankful for them and some other friends of Awaken. But um, John will be coming back upon his return and uh, um, excited about that. So if you're wondering, there's that. Also, we should note that Annie, our good friend Annie, who's been the admin here over the last couple of months, um, she has recently been accepted to a grad school in Korea, because everybody's doing that. (laughs) So uh, super excited for her, but that means she's leaving, and so um, we want to say, Annie, by the way, was the one singing over here, if you don't know Annie. She's in the back. Hi, Annie. How's it going? So thank you to Annie, everybody. Thank you. We're excited for you. And I was going to introduce Lisa to you this morning, who was the new admin, so if you get an email from somebody and you're like, who's Lisa, then you could have a face, but uh, evidently uh, food poisoning has arrived at their house, so she decided not to come. (laughs) Come on, what the heck, we're supposed to announce you today, so to be here. So next week, we'll let you know who that is. Okay, two dates, February 28th and March the 6th, they're coming up, we're sort of... uh, calling these conversations that matter. There's a number of things we've been hoping that would happen and things that we could do at Awaken related to a couple of key uh, issues and conversations, and they just happened to come together on two weekends in a row. So the 28th of February, 6.30, both of these, uh, my friend Paul Robinson is going to help us lead a conversation that's called uh, Perspectives Matter, and his work is really uh, inviting people to intercultural competency. So the ability to essentially recognize your own perspective, but also the ability to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes as it relates to race and diversity. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, If nothing else, I want to invite us to become educated, more educated, learners, uh, engaged in conversations that really matter. And so that's the hope of these. And then March 6th, uh, a young woman named Nicole is going to lead us in a conversation about art and justice and kind of leveraging art for the purpose of justice in the world. Um, She's a storyteller and filmmaker and works with uh, trafficked individuals in Africa. So she's going to be here those two, uh, March 6th. So note those on your calendars. They are on the website. All the details are there. Are you guys ready for today? 
Okay, I'm ready. I was doing some dancing earlier, and I actually did a, a, a beam routine right up here, right on this little pirouette and everything. So I'm ready for this. I am ready. Let's do this. My, maybe, next, maybe next time I'll pull that out and do that for you, but maybe not. Maybe not ever. March, um, Mark, Mark, num- Mark number 10. That's where we are, Mark chapter 10. Turn in your Bibles there. I want to explore a passage that... Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with, if you've been around church, it's called the rich young ruler. And if you've been around church, more, more than likely when this passage is, uh, uh, is preached or taught, it's a sermon about tithing and money. I want to suggest that this passage has nothing to do with tithing and money. But while I'm on the topic of tithing and money, I will say this, I will say this. As a pastor, um, I think it's really important what we do with our money. And um, if, you, uh, if you're new to Awaken, uh, I want to invite you, if this is home for you and you're not involved in our life financially, I want to invite you to do that uh, or consider it because um, more than anybody needing your money, I really do believe that it's a part of your formation. And as a pastor, um, you will grow as you pay attention to how you spend and invest your resources as it's connected to your spiritual life. So I want to encourage you to think about that. Um, when, we, when we talk about money at Awaken, we talk about it in four ways. We t- I ask people to consider giving uh, to something, but to give sacrificially. So what you might give is a sacrifice. It actually intentionally moves you to a place of being more trusting of God than less trusting of God, right? We work really hard to not be dependent on anybody and to sort of stand on our own two feet. I want to invite you to, with your money to a place where you have to trust God more, so that what you give is a sacrifice, that you would, one, sacrifice, two, proportionate, that it would be proportionate to your income. So never will you hear me or anybody from this stage say you should give X amount or this amount or this percentage of money, but it would be proportionate to what you make. So sacrificial, proportionate, uh, regular, that it would be regular. You'd commit to something. This would be something you'd say, you know what, I'm going to do this, and you'd live into it. That's a good practice in general. And then lastly, cheerfully, that you'd give with a glad heart. And if you can't do, if you can't do that, then don't worry about the other three because that's the one that matters the most, okay? So um, my wife and I have been um, meeting with a couple at Awaken named Tony and Erica. Um, we talk about generosity. It's right over here on this little screen. And I think that Christians should be the most generous people in the world. I think they should be, you should be the most generous people in your workplaces, in your family, anywhere you go. So how do we help people do that? How do we help people become more generous? One of the ways is we're this growing little ministry of finance coaching at Awaken. And so there's a few couples, uh, and Laura and I actually are meeting with Tony and Erica. Um, we're walking this out. We want to be wiser and more intentional with our money, and so we're asking for help. And they're helping us do that because they are brilliant in this area. Um, they're looking for more people to do that with, so if you're interested, please contact them or contact me. Um, and then there's a class that we offer in April that uh, is called Financial Peace, I think, if that's the right, was that right? Is it, did I get that? No? Yes? Nick, you, you were a part of it. Something like that. It's one of those financial classes that, that it's offered, but they are fantastic and they do a great job. So I want to encourage you to do that, okay? So now, let's look at a passage that has nothing to do with money. <laughs> See what I did there? Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Stand, if you will, verses 17 to 31 says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it for the, to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Pray with me if you will. God, as we uh, gather this morning as your church, uh, one small little part of it in this corner of the world. Uh, we do so with the hope that you are at work in the world, the belief that you are at work, uh, the trust that your spirit is moving, that you uh, have invited us into something, this grand story of redemption and reconciliation, that while our lives are maybe seemingly small on some days and uh, that we are a part of a larger story and a a huge river and tradition of people who have followed you faithfully, trusting and believing that you, in fact, were the Son of God, that you are the Son of God. And so we look to these scriptures, which we believe to be inspired by you, to teach us, God, that you might reveal yourself to us in them and through them this morning. It's my prayer. And all God's people said, amen. Have a seat, if you will. So if you remember last week, if you've been with us, we studied chapters 8 and 9 of Mark, and um, which was the passage where Jesus basically asks Peter, who do you say I am? This great moment in Mark's gospel. And Peter, uh, you know, responds, "You're you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And then Jesus is transfigured on top of this mountain. Mark says that he's wearing clothes that are like so white, nothing could bleach them whiter than that which is a little commentary that's fascinating and interesting. And then Jesus, and then we hear from, from, from the, the heavens, this is my son, you should listen to him. So Mark's gospel is split into two sections. And this first section is really what we've been doing in the last eight weeks or so, up through chapter nine. And chapters eight and nine really are the hinge. And then we move into chap, the second part of Mark's gospel, which we are in now. And Mark, the part, part one is really all about who is Jesus, And according to Mark, he's the true Israel. He's the true representative of Israel, doing all the things that Israel was intended to do, all the way to its fulfillment, which is sacrificial love for the world, for the nations. And then this invitation to this new group of people, this new Israel, on this new exodus of sorts. And then Mark, Mark's saying essentially Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, Mark said in the first half that Jesus is the Messiah, but in the second half, he's going to show us that Jesus is the world's true Lord. He's the king. He's the rightful king. So part two is really all about what has Jesus come to do and what does it mean to really follow him? So that's where we've begun in chapter 10. And it begins with this story about 
Just before what we read is a story about the kingdom being available only to little children, which was beautiful and fascinating that we, we saw what we saw this morning. And then this story about the rich young ruler. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to walk through this passage and just notice a couple of things that I think this text is inviting us to consider. And then I want to get to the end and, and essentially ask, what is at, what's the heart of this passage? If it's not about money and tithing, then what is it really about? All right? Are you with me? Okay. So when I was in, uh, um, in, in high school, I, I had the opportunity to go to Chicago and we were, uh, it was through a, an organization called Sun Life Evangelism Missions Project, SEMP it was called. So they basically bring all these high schoolers together in Chicago, and they train you how to evangelize, right? So you, you, by that, I mean you, you, you learn how to share your faith. And then, so that's in the morning, you have these little classes, they're called apologetics classes, to which, you know, all of us high schoolers are like, I don't have to apologize for anything, what are we going to these things for? I don't even get it how to defend your faith, and then you would go out in the afternoon, and on the calendar, it said hitting the streets, and you'd go out, and you'd literally just like walk up to random people in downtown Chicago and try to begin spiritual conversations with them. It was lots of fun (laughs) for a high schooler that's trying to figure out like how to make out the girl in the back of the van, right? (laughs) Real juxtaposition of values here, you know, like, ah, this is that. You just really play on the guilt card, too. That's a good one. So you go on this thing, and you learn how to do all these things. And, um, and the real key, the real key was, in, in our classes, we learned, the, 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 the sort of like, uh, the key that opened the door was this conversation about eternity and eternal life. And if these people, you know, random Joe that you met on the street, is interested in hearing more about eternal life, you had them, right? Then you had the end to kind of begin the conversation or continue the conversation about what really matters, which is the gospel, which is... Are you going to heaven or hell? That was like it. That was the conversation. Can we get them to the point where they're interested to hear about eternal life? Because that's what matters the most, whether or not they're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Now, um, the rich young ruler asks a very important question of Jesus, right? And I can't teach this passage without stopping here. Because so often, especially as evangelicals, those who consider themselves as such... We love to talk about this, and I, but I want to suggest that I think we're missing a part of it if, if that, the story that I told to illustrate, is kind of the gist of it. I think that we're missing something, and I think that we're misinterpreting something, and I think that there's more here. So this question that he asks the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is eternal life? And like I said, I feel like as Christians and as people who would consider themselves Protestant and evangelical, this idea of the gospel and eternal life is wrapped up in a conversation that many of us are familiar with and we sort of, I think, maybe take for granted. But the first time I really was um, maybe confronted by the truth of the scripture, I thought to myself, my goodness gracious, there's so much more here. How come nobody sees this and why aren't we talking about it? So I can't pass this, teach this passage and not stop here. So first, um, why, why is this question of eternal life, and what is really this guy asking? No first century Jew in Jesus' time would have heard this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life and equate it to how do I get to heaven after I die? That is just completely and utterly not in the minds of the people who would have heard this first. We have Dante's Inferno to thank for that, not Jesus or the Bible. Okay, if, you're not, if you don't know what that is, go back. It's a literary work, uh, a great one, a classic, but really informs a lot of our thinking about what happens after we die. 
And so we then import meaning into a text that I don't think was ever there. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he doesn't mean is, how do I make sure that I get to go to heaven after I die and not hell? Not the question he's asking. Rather, the Jews of Jesus' day believed in two ages or two eras. There was the present age, and then there was the age to come. Now, you can see where some of this comes from, our, our, our sort of default thinking about it, but it's not quite what we've gathered. There's the age that we live in now, and then there's the age to come. So the present age is now, it's what's happening, it's Jesus' time, and, and this guy's asking, how do I ensure that I get to participate in the age to come? And the age to come is not some disembodied evacuation strategy where all the faithful go somewhere else and everybody else goes somewhere else. No, no, it's rather, <clears throat> excuse me, where God... And this is very common if you go back and you read other people who are writing in Jesus' time and other Jewish thinkers and and, uh, the teachers of the law. This is absolutely there. Where God would resurrect, literally resurrect, the faithful in God and and would heal the entire world and where these people with God as king ruling and reigning would live in a world filled with justice and shalom, peace. So it had nothing to do with being evacuated to some other place, but rather where God would essentially put the world to right. So when this guy says, what must I do to inherit the age to come? What he's essentially saying is, how do I make sure that I get to participate in this thing when you, God, when God, not you, Jesus, but when God resurrects all of the people who are faithful, all of the faithful followers of God, and rules and reigns in a world where there is justice and peace as norm, not violence and oppression. Here, in this world, not somewhere else. So eternal life was not about being evacuated somewhere when we died, but rather this restoration, recreation, redemption of all that God made good, and those who trust God to bring it about would inhabit it with Jesus as the king, in perpetuity. That was the age to come. That's what they were looking forward to. That's what the question is rooted in. So when the rich young ruler asks this question, how do I ensure that I get to the age to come? This is what he's asking for. But unfortunately, his question gives him away and gives people like him away. And Jesus sort of hones in on it. So the mistake the rich young ruler makes is twofold. And I think we would do well not to miss it. Number one, The mistake that the age to come is primarily about an individual or me. I think when we think about what is God doing in the world and what is salvation about, the message that I got as a kid was that it's for you as an individual. If you were the only one left, God would die for you. Has anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, a couple, you're nodding. Yeah, if if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would die for you. I don't think that that's false or inaccurate. I just think that it's way more than that. And that that particular kind of thinking is actually quite indicative of our culture as Americans and not the scripture. The scripture is about the whole wide world. It's about all that God made good. It's not just about me. In fact, it's not just about me as a human. Romans talks about the entire planet groaning for redemption and salvation. The world that God made is waiting to be saved from this curse that we're under. So are we. But it's not just me. So one, the mistake that he makes is, how do I inherit the age to come? And often when you have much, it's very easy to think the world revolves around you, right? For people that have a lot, we often think, and and this is just the drift of humanity, it's just 
what we do. When we have so much, it's easy to think that everything, it sort of revolves around us. So I think that's one of the mistakes he makes. And then the second is that there's something that we do to secure the age to come. What must I do to inherit the age to come? And if you know anything about grace, you know that you don't do anything. Grace is a gift. It's free. It's regardless of you or your position or your accolades or your pedigree or your dues. Or it's, it's outside of that. So what must I do to inherit the age to come? Nothing. Good news, everybody. Good news, right? You don't have to check the boxes. You don't have to come here every Sunday and give or participate in religion. or You don't have to do any of the things that people think they have to do. It's a gift. It's called grace. I just come back next week and say the same thing. Grace, grace, grace. It's a gift. What must I do to secure it? And so Jesus, in his wisdom, in his sort of jujitsu Hebrew rabbi way, he sort of exposes this thinking and he offers this guy a test. And to ensure that it's exposed, he offers this test. And we know from Scripture that a test, according to Deuteronomy 8, remember how the Lord your God led you into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. A test in Scripture is often, and I would argue always, the gentle revealing of what's already present. When God tests us, and I think, it, I think that there's room for this in, in a theology that's open, right? That allows free will. But when God tests us or invites us into something, I want to suggest that it's always connected to revealing what's already in our hearts. A test in scripture and a test from, from the divine reveals what's already here. It just turns on the lights. And that's exactly what happens for this guy, this rich young ruler. So, two... Um, one, uh, uh, this this idea of what is eternal life, I want to talk about that. And then two, we would do well to remember that the spiritual life and the life of faith, our tests and invitation are often, and I would say almost always, connected to what is closest to our hearts. When, when, When God invites us into something, when the divine tests us or invites us to take a step towards something or to grow, it's often connected to something that is very, very close to what you hold dear and near. There's so much going on in this passage in particular. Um, This rich guy, he begins this little soliloquy with good teacher. If you remember in verse, uh, verse about 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And anybody who studies ancient Judaism knows that the only person, the only being that one would call good is Yahweh, God himself. So Jesus responds in this fashion. He says, why do you call me good? Only Yahweh is good. So this guy is either trying to sort of butter Jesus up, good teacher, right? Like give him a couple, you know, throw him a bone here, or he's saying something about who Jesus is. Well, who knows what's actually happening there? We don't know. But there's something that's being said there, good teacher. And so Jesus responds, why do you call me good? And remember that Jesus is still trying to fly under the radar at this point in time, right? In Mark's gospel, he, he, he heals these people, and he does these things, and then he tells them, be quiet, don't tell anybody, go back to your village, or don't go back to your village, because don't tell anybody. He's trying to fly under the radar. And if a teacher who is welcoming people to call him good, which essentially equates him to God, right? If there's a teacher who's doing that, the people who are at the top, who are running this deal, 
uh, are going to, you know, this is like stirring up the hornet's nest. So Jesus says, listen, don't call me good. And then, in this passage, Jesus offers him a number of these commandments, right? He says, uh, and how many commandments are there in the Bible from the Old Testament? Not a trick question. Ten. It's ten. Charlton Heston goes up, gets the law. Ten commandments in the Bible. Jesus only offers a couple of them to this guy, right? What's interesting is what he says, but even more interesting is what he doesn't say. He offers the commands five through nine. What he leaves out are commands one through four and then command number ten. Now, five through ten could be considered all about external activity and behavior. So he says to the guy, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud your father or your mother, honor your father and your mother. And the guy says what? Yeah, I've done all these since I was a kid. Exactly. He essentially walks this guy into this moment where he begins to realize, and those who are there, you could do all of these things that you've done and never address what's actually happening on the inside. And what do we know about tests and the invitations of the divine? They're often connected to what's very close to us. So Jesus leaves out four commandments, which one could argue are all about who is God, who are you, and how does this whole thing shake out, right? The commands he leaves out, no other gods before me, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain and honor the Sabbath. Who is God and who are you? And what's the hierarchy? Who's first, who's second? What he leaves out are all the things that happen on the inside. It's fascinating. <clears throat> so Jesus invites this guy. The guy says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. And Jesus says, yes, I know this. Now, here comes the test. He invites him into an area that proves to be very near and dear to this guy, and there's resistance. He walks away. He says, take everything that you have and sell it and give it to the poor and then follow me. And what's the text say? His head drops and he leaves. There's resistance to the invitation. Friends, pay very close attention. I don't say a lot of things like, you can take this to the bank, and I don't say a lot of things about, like, I guarantee you on this one, but I'll go ahead and say it on this one. In the spiritual life, lean into the resistance. When we're talking about faith and we're talking about spiritual formation, when there is resistance, I implore you, I encourage you, I exhort you, don't take a step back in that place, take a step forward. Because this is the place where growth happens. These are the places when you have to move into the resistance where good things grow. Uh, these are the ecotones of the soul. An ecotone are where two ecological communities come up against one another, like the ocean meets the shore, or the ocean, yeah, the ocean meets the shore. And in every one of those places, there is absolute life, there's burst, life bursting forth in the ecotones. There's always tension there, and there's always things that are changing there. The resistance are the ecotones of our soul, where two competing ideas or beliefs about something, whether it's ourself or God or something else, come in conflict and there's tension. I want to encourage you, when you find yourself and there's resistance in your spirit, do not run. Stand in the light and work through it. Because these are the places where growth comes. These are the places where fruit comes from. I had a friend of mine who bought me a trip to Nashville a couple years ago. 
And uh, he sent me down there to go visit with this guy. He was like a uh, counselor, therapist. Um, he, he met with like young pastors and leaders. It was a gift. I mean, just an unbelievable gift. Flew me down there, put me up in a hotel. It was like three days with Jack, and he'll just take your heart out and put it on the, on the table. It's going to be awesome. So I go down there, and I spend three days with this guy, just me and him in his office in this beautiful, you know, Blue Ridge Mountains or whatever's down there. Gorgeous. That was not what I felt on the inside, not peaceful at all. But at one point in the, in the time, Jack looks at me and he says, Micah, steely eyes, right? He goes, Micah, do you want to be the angry little boy or the mature man? Because you can't be both. <laughs> there it is. Very, very close to my heart. Very, very close to my story and my journey and the growth that I needed. And I was like, what I wanted to say to this guy was, should not be repeated in church. (laughs) You know, like, I'll tell you what I'm going to be. You know. Oh, so number one then, right? (laughs) Breathe deep. Move to the resistance. Enter it. Move towards it. The invitations from God are often very close to our hearts, and there is often resistance when we get there. Don't run. Now, this passage always begs the question, well, should I sell everything that I have? So Jesus comes to this guy, and he comes, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the guy says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. So then Christians say, well, Jesus says this, should I do it? And I would say to you, no, absolutely not. To read this passage and come to that conclusion that that's what Jesus is asking all believers to do is a complete misread of the text for at least a couple reasons. One, Jesus is defying common ancient Near Eastern Jewish teaching by saying what he's saying to this guy. Very common among Jewish teachers, and you can find it in, in, in the Talmud and other texts that are near Jesus' time, that a Jewish rabbi would never tell somebody, sell everything you have, the ability to bless others and resource the community, sell that gift that you have, and then give it to the poor, and then so that you're poor and you depend on the community. They would never do that, because to do that, if I have something and I have the opportunity to be generous and to bless my community, because community is a totally different thing in Jesus' time, Right? There's responsibility to one another that they felt that we maybe didn't. For me, to take all that I have, to sell it and give it away, and then become burden to the community isn't something that's honorable. It's actually, it's totally discouraged. So Jesus' response to this guy is a little bizarre. He goes against conventional wisdom and teaching and says, sell everything you have and follow me. Why? Well, I want to suggest this isn't about money. This passage was never about money. It's about worship, and it's about trust. What are you unwilling to entrust into the hands of God? That's the question. It's not how much money do you make. It's not what are your resources. The question behind the question is what are you unwilling to entrust into the hands of God? And this passage exposes this tendency that we have to not entrust God with everything that we have. And the particular difficulty that comes when you have resources. That's true. And Jesus goes on to reinforce it. How hard is it to enter the kingdom for a rich person? He talks about that. Because often when we have everything we need, we don't know our need. 
Being poor has all kinds of challenges, but getting the nature and the heart of the kingdom is not one of them because you know your need. And that's the first, that's the key to the kingdom. So this passage is about trust. What are you willing or unwilling to completely and utterly trust into the care in the hands of God? And then, what do you worship? Worship is about the ascribing of worth to something over something else. It's about what we value. It's about what we hold dear. And what we think is primary and essential and we perceive that we need, we go to great lengths to preserve, keep, protect, and ensure it. Worship wraps up all of these things. And this question for the rich man, about is, is, it's about his resources and his money, but it's not about that. It's about what he worships. It's about what is primary in his heart. It's about what he holds that he won't give to God and entrust to God. And so for you this morning, I would argue that it's probably not the same question. But if Jesus were to walk into this room this morning, I think the question he would ask would be, what is the one thing that you are unwilling to, to give me and entrust to my care? Maybe it's a dream of what your life was supposed to be. Maybe it's a particular career path that you think you're on or that you should be on or that you want to be on. That you, if you give up, what happens next? Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it is a possession. Maybe it's a house or a car or a toy or a a boat or a membership or a hobby or something. Maybe it's a political agenda. Maybe it's, maybe it's the willingness to forgive somebody. Because if you, if you entrust that to God, then it's like you give justice away or revenge. You see, the question isn't about this guy's money. It's about his heart. And what are you willing or unwilling to completely and utterly entrust to God's care today? That's the question this guy gets. That's the test. That's the invitation. And if there's resistance, now we're cooking with oil. This is the good spot. This is exactly where you want to be. So I want to ask you this morning, what's the one thing that you are unwilling or having a difficult time entrusting, fully entrusting to God's care? I want to invite you to a time of silence and uh, a practice that we've done here before that's called imaginative prayer. And in the church tradition, it's called cataphatic prayer. It's essentially just engaging our imagination and our minds because we know things are true to the degree that we image them in our minds, right? So can we actually see and imagine or see in our mind's eye the reality and the truths that the scriptures are offering us today? That's what I want to invite you to do, okay? I received this picture. Um, this is a, a piece that somebody drew on a piece of wood for me um, for my birthday recently. And I was looking at it yesterday as I was wrapping this up, and I thought to myself, yep, nailed it. And this is it. <clears throat> if you imagine, that's a heart, if you can't tell. And I want to invite you to essentially do this with your heart. And allow God to hold whatever it is that you have that is hard to let go of or you're struggling to give or, or release the control of. So I'm going to invite you to a time of silence and I'm going to invite you to consider this question. 
So if you would, maybe just take a moment, uh, settle in where you are, close your eyes if you want to. Um, I'll invite the worship team, they're going to come and lead in a couple of songs as we close. But I, imag- I want you to imagine that you are with God, in the presence of God, whatever that might look like. Maybe it's a face, or maybe it's a, uh, a light, or however you image God, whatever you imagine God to be like. I want you to imagine being near and in the presence of God. And I'm going to just leave you in a, a few moments in silence to think about this question. And I want you in your, in your own mind to imagine hearing the voice of God or the face of Jesus, whatever it is for you. This question. Will you entrust, and fill in the blank, whatever it is, will you entrust this thing to my care? Fully, wholly. And as you do, play that out. If it's handing it to Jesus, if it's saying it out loud, if it's uh, whatever that interaction looks like. So God, as we take this time, we trust that your spirit is the spirit of truth, so we have nothing to fear. We trust that you lead us to the light and that you lead us to truth, so we follow your lead here, Holy Spirit. Uh, Bring to light the things that we need to entrust you to your care, the things that maybe we're holding on to the things that we are unwilling to let go of. God, bring them into the light and help us to walk faithfully with courage towards you, I pray. Friends, I want to invite you to stand, receive a benediction. Lent is a journey to the cross. So it is a readying ourselves for death so that new life can be born. Uh, In tradition, during Lent, the church doesn't sing hallelujah. So it can feel like a really dark time, which makes the light of Easter all that brighter. Um, So I want to invite you to this journey, an intentional one, to the cross, moving towards resistance, trusting that God makes good things grow. Amen? So receive this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord make his his countenance towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. Love you guys. Grace and peace. Find us online at com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.